Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. How many of you read the Book of Lamentations in preparation for our evening tonight? Uh, look at that, the chosen few, the chosen few. I won't, I won't ask how many have read Lamentations before, not to embarrass anyone for not reading your Bible. But we have a wonderful opportunity this evening, I believe, to reflect upon some passages of the Old Testament, which some of them you may be very familiar with, others you may not be very familiar with. And my job tonight, I hope, is to contextualize Lamentations for you, not so much give a verse-by-verse -verse commentary, because to be honest with you, I don't think that a verse-by-verse -verse commentary is very helpful to us today in this sense, that Lamentations was written for a particular people. And we always have to keep that in mind when we're reading the scriptures. Context, context, context. And we do a disservice to the church. We do a disservice to the scriptures. We do a disservice to the author when we read it out of context. Okay? And only within context will we be able to properly apply it to our situation today. And should it be applied to our situation today? Absolutely. The scriptures are written for our benefit. Okay, and we will see, I would think, some very similar things going on in our lives today, but only when we're reading it in context will we be able to properly apply it. So my job for you today, my job in service to you today, is to contextualize lamentations for you. As I said, context, context, context is the first principle. If you're taking notes, write that down right at the top. I've got it bolded, capitalized, everything. Context, context, context. If you walk out of here with nothing else, that's what I want you to walk out with. The second thing, the second principle of a good study of the sacred scriptures is to ask questions. And if you don't ask questions, then you will end up reading the Bible as I think sadly many Catholics read the Bible, and that is in obedience I gotta do it because I was told I gotta do it and it's supposed to be good for me. And so I'm just gonna get through it and I'm gonna be happy at the end. Really, really happy. Okay? So you have to ask yourself questions. Who, what, why, where, and when? There's probably no more depressing text in the entire Bible than the book of Lamentations. And if you don't put it in context and ask yourself who, what, why, where, and when, then I, I'd be afraid of what you're going to do on the drive home tonight, okay? <laughs> context, 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 and asking yourself questions. This applies to the entire Bible. Who, what, why, where, and when. If you can answer those questions, you're well on your way to interpreting the text properly, okay? And the most important thing when you're asking who, what, why, and where, and when is the context, the historical context in which the text was written, Okay? And I hope to give you some of that today. Most people, as I already mentioned, tend to open up their Bible and they start reading not knowing where they're going. And I don't want it to be that way with us. Reading Lamentations out of context is not only a bad idea, 
but I believe it is dangerous. And I will tell you why. I'd like to, to you to open up your Bibles to the book of Lamentations. If you don't know where that is, Catholics, it's in the Old Testament. Okay? Just after Jeremiah, okay? Very short, five chapters. Find your way there now. And you might want to put a card there or something because we're going to be coming back to it. And uh, we'll be looking at a number of books and flipping back and forth tonight. That's why I didn't put any tablecloths on your tables, not only to save us money, but... Uh, <laughs> okay, that's the truth. I was trying to save money. But also, so you could write notes down to the passages so you can go back to these things. But take a look at this. Take a look at this. Chapter 2 of Lamentations, verse 1. How the Lord in His anger has set the daughter of Sion under a cloud... He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has destroyed without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. He has slain all the pride of our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. Now, I don't know about you, but reading that text out of context is a bit scary. Not only is it scary, I think that if you don't read it in context, I would hope that you would not believe in a God like that, who is described by John the Beloved as love. John tells us, God is love, and His mercy endureth forever. So how are we supposed to take texts like this? And the only way to do it properly, I believe, is to contextualize what is being said and to understand it according to a very important biblical principle. And that is every text of the Bible is inspired by God. He is the primary author of what you are reading. With that said, He also uses human instruments. He uses us, as St. Paul says, as His hands and His feet. And when reading the sacred scriptures, we always read them through the eyes of the human author, knowing that the human author has been moved by the Holy Spirit to write down truth. Truth through the eyes of the author. And this is fundamentally important to be able to get into the mind, into the shoes of Jeremiah the prophet, to be able to see Jerusalem as he saw Jerusalem, to be able to hear the moaning of the women and the crying of the babies, to be able to see the dead bodies stinking, to smell Jerusalem with him, to see the birds flying over the air and eating the dead bodies in his beloved home. And only when we do that will we be able to properly interpret the text. Lamentations is traditionally attr attributed to the prophet Jeremiah. 
And there is a reason why it is attributed to Jeremiah. First of all, because I believe it was actually written by Jeremiah, which puts me in the minority as far as biblical exegetes, if I can call myself that. As far as modern biblical exegetes, I should say, because the entire history of the church, the entire history of the Jewish people, has told us that there is one author to this text, and it is the prophet Jeremiah, for a good reason. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles for a moment. 2 Chronicles comes right after uh, 1 and 2 Kings, or in your Bible it might be called 4th Kings. 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th Kings, or 2 Chronicles, okay? As we're flipping through these guys, if you start to feel yourself get tired, please do not give up trying. Because when you give up trying and you close the Bible, you close the Word of God. And we're going to talk about those who do not hear the Word of God and what happens to them tonight. So, 2 Chronicles chapter 35. We'll start with verse 23. The archers shot King Josiah. King Josiah was a young king who we'll mention a little bit later, who was alive just prior to the Babylonian captivity, just prior to the writing of Lamentations, and he was killed in a battle. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him to Jerusalem. And he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Josiah was one of two righteous kings that ruled over Judah, which was the southern kingdom during the split between the north and the south. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Verse 25, Jeremiah also uttered a lament, uh, lamentations, a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. So there is a tradition. What we go on? They made these an ordinance in Israel. Behold, they are written in the lamentations. Okay? Now there's debate on this point as to whether the book of lamentations we're reading are the lamentations spoken of here, and I don't think they are, because in context, the lamentations of Jeremiah are being written a few years later. But the point is that Jeremiah was an author, and he wrote down lamentations about what he was seeing. And so he was known for writing these laments that the people could sing together liturgically over the death of their king, and the tradition has come down to us also that he wrote these lamentations. You say, Deacon Sabatino, I'm looking at the book of Lamentations before me, and it says, the Lamentations of Jeremiah. Well, here's the problem. The Masoretic text, the text of, in Hebrew, which is actually quite a late date, a post-Christian text, post-incarnation text, I should say, does not mention this. It does not say, it just says, simply says, the Lamentations. In fact, the original title for this book was not Lamentations at all. It was simply How. How. Why would it be called How? Catholics. Look at your Bible. That's the first word of the book. Why would they name it out of the first word of the book? This was the ancient tradition to name like a... Like an encyclical, a papal encyclical today is oftentimes done that way. The first few words are the title of the encyclical letter going back all the way to the ancient world. And so similarly here, the ancient name is how. But anyways, over time, in the Talmud and other writings, it became known as Lamentations. But the Greek text that we have, the Septuagint text, which is, predates the Masoretic text, says at the beginning of the book, 
prior to verse 1 that you have before you, says, And it came to pass, after Israel had gone into captivity and Jerusalem was laid waste, that Jeremiah sat weeping and composed this lament over Jerusalem and said... Okay, so we have a tradition which goes, very ancient, which goes back that tells us that Jeremiah is actually the author of this text. One of the modern commentators that I was reading says this, There can be no doubt that on the grounds of style and content alone, all of the poems came from the same hand, who was evidently an eyewitness to the calamity which overtook Judah. And again, Judah, the southern two tribes, Okay, Judah and Benjamin together, which became known as Judah in the south, which lived right around Jerusalem, okay, which had stayed faithful to the Davidic king. It seems highly improbable that anyone other than Jeremiah would have been moved to such depths of expression by the collapse of resistance in Jerusalem and still be in a position to record his feelings in such moving verse. The text is dated right around 587 and certainly no later than 550. Of course, we're counting down to the Incarnation. So right between 587 and no later than 550. And why do they give these dates? Because nowhere in the book of Lamentations does it talk about the restoration of Jerusalem. It looks forward to the restoration, but does not give a hint that anything has happened yet. So we know it's before the return of the exiles from Babylon 70 years later. Notice that your title for the book is in the plural. Not lamentation, but lamentations. Because it consists of not one lament, but five. And those five laments are divided in your Bible according to the chapters. Now, I always tell you, don't stop reading at the chapter break. Because it breaks up the text, a late edition, and it is a late edition to the text. Okay? But the original Hebrew text would have given an indication other than a chapter break as to where the laments began. And so I have a handout for you, which might be very helpful tonight. And I think we're going to hand those out with a few volunteers coming from the back so that you can take a look at what has been described by one author as the tour de force translation of the Book of Lamentations done by Monsignor Ronald Knox. Monsignor Ronald Knox is a, was a, quite a biblical scholar, and he is known mostly for his translation of the Bible, one man having translated the entire Bible himself. Very valuable. Very valuable because you don't get different perspectives on the style of translation. One guy taking his principles and putting them into the translation of the text. And you'll see what he's done with this text. And I'll describe it for you. Five poems following a literary pattern which is lost in most of your English Bibles unless you have Ronald Knox's Bible. The first four laments follow a structure called an acrostic making for a very sophisticated construction. What is an acrostic? You will see that each of the laments goes through the alphabet. Each stanza begins with the next letter in the alphabet. Of course, he is following... Do I even have one in front of me? Yes, I do. He's following our alphabet, not the Hebrew alphabet, which makes it quite an amazing achievement. Uh, what, what he did with this text, and as the author that, was, that I was reading on this point was mentioning, he says, it's a bit forced in some areas, but he was trying to get the point across, and it's very valuable for us today to see what Jeremiah was doing with the text. 
the 22 consonants of the Hebrew alphabet are used in succession to control the length of each of the first four poems, and they also mark the commencement of the individual stanzas. You might say, well, that's not all that sophisticated, Deacon Sabatino. Okay, I mean, it's a fairly basic level of poetry, if you will. But here's the thing, and I'm reading to you from a commentary that I picked up that I think expresses it most clearly. The first three chapters follow a grouping pattern involving three lines to a stanza. You see that? But an elaboration of the simple acrostic pattern occurs in the third dirge. Turn to the third lament, where each of the three verses of the stanza begins with the same Hebrew consonant. You see how he, what he does there? Okay, it's not only now the first line, but all three follow that, the, al the Hebrew alphabet in their in the first letter, if you will, okay? The fourth poem contains two lines in each stanza rather than three, while the fifth poem is not an acrostic at all. Okay, so how does the fifth poem fit in? It consists of 22 lines. Of course, there are 22 consonants in the Hebrew alphabet, or 22 stanzas, I should say, okay? Why? Why would the author, why would the prophet Jeremiah uh, use this form? First of all, for memory. This was most likely used quite early. It certainly was used by the Jews after 70 AD when, the, when Jerusalem fell in 70 AD. Now, we're talking a different fall than the Babylonian exile in which it was originally written. Okay? But it certainly was used after 70 A.D. for the commemoration of the fall of Jerusalem, which Jews still celebrate today, or remember today, singing the Lamentations of Jeremiah. It's also been used in the Latin West since the 9th century on Good Friday. Okay? So, first of all, for memory. But there's a more important reason. You've heard, all heard the phrase, uh, from A to Z. Meaning? The entire thing. Yeah. In fact, there are similar phrases in the Hebrew, in the rabbinic tradition. Adam transgressed the whole law from Aleph to Tau. The entire law. Or Abraham kept the whole law from Aleph to Tau. Okay? Meaning the entire thing. This is called a Hebrew merism. If you're writing down M-E-R-I-S-M. -S a Hebrew merism. Okay, which grabs the two furthest points okay, and mentions them as a way to say everything in between. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not so much that if they ate from it, all of a sudden they would know good things and evil things, but that they would receive the fullness of knowledge. Okay, the fullness of knowledge, a Hebrew merism. And so Jeremiah writes from Aleph to Tau, from A to Z, if you will, in order to express the fullness of the lament, the complete destruction of Jerusalem, that he's at the absolute bottom. It couldn't get any worse. And what he is about to describe to you certainly is about the worst thing you can imagine, especially those who have been to Jerusalem. As far as structure is concerned, I'll just mention a few other things. That chapter 1 of the Lamentations speaks of the desolate state of the whole city and is divided, chapter 1, the first lament, is divided into two sections, verses 1 through 11 and verse 12 through 22. The first 
11 verses speaks as the city as observed by Jeremiah the prophet as he came back to the city and looked at what had happened. Okay? From verse 12 through 22, Jerusalem speaks. And as you read it, you'll notice, in fact, take a look at verse 12 of chapter 1. Listen to this. You'll notice that it's the first reaction to absolute embarrassment and desolation at what has happened. Is it not, this is in the, in, the, in the mouth of Jerusalem, okay? Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see. Is there any sorrow like my sorrow which has been brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of His fierce anger? This absolute, this reaction of total, total desolation and embarrassment at the state that the city finds itself. And more important than the city, the people who are still living in the city. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. The second lament looks for a cause to the destruction of Jerusalem. And you can imagine, as a person, having realized the state that you are in, immediately going and looking for causes. The first reaction, a human reaction, is to blame. Where can I cast my blame? Who did this to me? Why, why has this taken place? And immediately, a realization of God as ultimate, as ultimate actor in the situation. That God has allowed for Jerusalem to be destroyed. Yahweh has become the enemy of the people of God. The third lament is a more personal lament of Jerusalem. Okay, Again, speaking through the voice of Jerusalem, or maybe more importantly, through the, I believe, through the voice of the remnant left there. And again, we'll speak about that remnant in a few minutes. It's a personified nation okay, which realizes the importance of repentance. No longer is the city described by others. Jerusalem speaks for herself. Chapter 3, the third lament, which lays in the middle of the Lamentations, is the heart of the Lamentations. The most important, the realization, the honest-to-God personal reflection. The fourth lament looks for those responsible for the blame among her people. Focusing on the priests and prophets who, the text says, lied to them and misled the people of God. And the fifth lament is, I think, besides maybe the third lament, which is at heart, the fifth lament is the most moving prayer. A prayer of repentance for restoration from God. But all of this serves to examine the text from the outside, as I would say a modern commentator might. But the fact is, that the real story of the Lamentations involves people, real people, real people who have died and real people who have seen their beloved die, who are laying there decaying in the streets of Jerusalem. It is the battle of salvation history, as we've done before at the Institute, that swords and serpents that God desires the salvation of His people, that we might live. But when we walk away from Him, we find not life but death. 
And when we find people dying on the ground in front of us in battles, it is because God loves us so much that He will not let His people perish altogether. And when people, some people, put themselves as an adversary to God, when they put themselves outside of the covenant of God, then what is revealed in their life comes to fruition. And we not only find people dead in their souls, but that death in their soul is revealed also in their bodies. That when the blessing and protection of God is removed, then we find only sadness, sickness, and ultimately death. I said context, context, context. And I need to to do that with you for a moment. My dear Institute of Catholic Culture friends that have been with me so long, I need you to help me put this in context. And so if you have not done salvation history with us here at the Institute, I encourage you to go on our website and listen to our talks on salvation history. But those that have, I need you to help me. Okay, and I'm going to walk you from Adam and eventually we're going to get to Jeremiah to find out where we are. Okay, you know that God created Adam and Eve in paradise. And after they were cast out of paradise, they had three sons. And one of those sons received the blessing of God. He was the third son of Adam and Eve. What was his name? Seth. Seth. And Seth had a great, 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 great grandson who walked with God and was assumed into heaven. And his name was Enoch. And Enoch had a great, great grandson who built an ark. His name was Noah. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And which one received the blessing of God to become the head of the household? Shem. Shem. And Shem had a great, 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 many greats grandson who was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. And his name was Abraham. And Abraham had a son. And Isaac had a son. Jacob. And Jacob had an older brother named Esau. Right? And Esau sold his birthright. Jacob received that blessing and received a new name. And his name became Israel. And he had how many sons? Come on, answer me, guys. Twelve sons. Okay, twelve sons. His oldest son's name was? Reuben. Reuben, But Reuben... (laughs) Not not too good. Okay. Reuben rejected his firstborn blessing. Probably the stupidest, stupidest decision I've seen anyone ever make because he was to receive it. Okay. Okay, never mind. All right. Anyways... Who received the blessing of the twelve sons to become head of the family and king of the people of God? Judah. That's right, Judah. And you need to know one other person who's very important in this story. Really, two other people are very important in this story. He had also a young son that he loved very much, and his name was Joseph. And as sins oftentimes follow us, his brothers sold him into slavery, and they ended up themselves in slavery. Right. But there's another son who's very important, and his name was... He was the father or great-great-grandfather of Moses. Levi. Levi. Very good. Levi. Okay. Moses obviously led the people out of the Exodus and to Mount Sinai where the people did what while Moses was up on Mount Sinai? They built a golden calf. And when Moses came down, he realized what had happened. The firstborn had entered into the worship of the golden calf. And so they themselves rejected their place in the family of God. And who took their place as priests? 
the Levites. So it's there at the golden calf the book of Leviticus is written to explain the law. Just like when my son does something wrong, what do I do? I make more rules for him to get the point across, to make it clear. If you didn't hear me the first time, this is exactly what you're going to do. Okay? And the people left Mount Sinai with the book of Leviticus and the, Levite and the, priests, the Levites leading them as priests and Moses leading the charge. They then came to the Holy Land, scouted out the Holy Land, and ended up what? Wandering for 40 years. And at the end of that 40 years, they encamped in the plains of Moab. And there in the plains of Moab, the Bible tells us that the people of God played the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Played the harlot. What does that mean? Played the harlot with the daughters of Moab. And the people... How is it that men play the harlot? What's that? They worshipped uh, the god from, uh, from the daughters. They worshipped other gods, absolutely. And why would that make them a harlot? As, as you know, I'll give you the answer for time's sake. Because Israel was the bride of God. Men and women. Unified as one people. As the bride of God. God was their husband. Not their dictator. The one who loved them. Who gave his life for them. Who served them. And there in the plains of Moab, when they played the harlot with the daughters of Moab, God sat down being a loving father and said, if you didn't get it the first time, let me explain the law to you again. And the book of Deuteronomy, the second law was written to explain what exactly he meant in the first law. A further explanation. And there from Moab, they entered into the Holy Land. Now, I'm completely off of my notes, but I think I'm right where I need to be. <laughs> Open up to Deuteronomy, chapter 28. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God... Now look, he's just finished. Look over at chapter 28, verse 1. And if you obey the voice of the Lord your God, this is what's going to happen. You're going to be blessed. You're going to be fruitful. Everything is going to work out. If you do not obey the voice of your God, verse 15, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you this day, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air. Verse 36. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you serve over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. That word serve there in the Hebrew can be translated as serve or also worship. Is the original word also translated as till for Adam in the garden of what he was supposed to do in paradise. You will there worship the pagan gods. Verse 47, because you did not serve, huh, worship the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart by reason of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst in nakedness and in the want of all things, and he will put a yoke of iron upon your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagles fly, a nation whose language you do not understand. 
Where have we heard in the Bible before about languages which you do not understand? The Tower of Babel. The heart of the Babylonian Empire. Very soon, they will enter into the Holy Land. And the Babylonian Empire will come out of the north to destroy the people of God, to destroy Jerusalem. And verse 53, If you were not careful to do all the words of this law which are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awful name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting. He will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt which you were afraid of, and they shall cleave to you every sickness also, and every affliction which is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed." Whereas you were the stars of the heaven for multitude, you shall be left few in number. Why? Because they did not serve the Lord. In fact, this is a warning. If you do not serve the Lord, if you do not worship Him, and you come to worship other gods and serve them and become their servants, then they will give you what they have to offer. In the book of Deuteronomy, in fact, you just turn one page, chapter 30, verse 15. See, I set before you this day life and good, death and evil. Therefore, choose life. Because apart from God, apart from the one who has eternal life, there is no life to be found. What happened? Chapter 7 of Joshua. Turn to Joshua. Okay, the next book in your Bible, chapter 7. Melanie, are you ready to read? That's wonderful. Chapter 7, verse 1. But the sons of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Okay, what's being taught these devoted things? Jer- Jericho had just fallen. They just crossed the Jordan River. They just took Jericho. The walls came tumbling down. And one of the guys went in and took some of the idols out with him and hid them in his his tent. Okay, And the Lord's anger, it says, burned against the people. This was the perception of Achan and the people. The Lord's anger burned against them. But what is the reality? That God's blessing they had put outside of their life. And when they discovered their life now, they discovered a life apart from God, which is a life filled with only one thing, and that is darkness and death. Chapter 22, verse 10. Very quickly move there, please. Chapter 22, verse 10. And when they came to the region about the Jordan that lies in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan. Okay, I'm going to stop you for for a minute because you can just write that verse down and I'll tell you what happened. They went off. They built their own altars to the false gods. You can keep reading that chapter. You want to know what happened after Deuteronomy was written in the plains of Moab? All of those things which God had warned against, the people of God went and did. Okay? Melanie, go ahead and read chapter 23 of Joshua. 23, verse 16. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land which he has given to you. And why will they perish off the land? Because the land of God, 
Because the land was the place of worship. It was given to the people so as to enter into a relationship with God. And we enter into a relationship with God by serving Him, by worshiping Him. And to worshiping Him, we come to know Him. Okay? So when they walk away from God, they also walk away from God's home. They walk away from that holy land which He had given them in order to dwell there in communion with Him. Judges chapter 2, verse 6. One text that I think describes our situation today quite well. When Joshua dismissed the people, chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Verse 10. And all that generation also died. Joshua dies here in the text. And were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord of the work which he had done for Israel. They did not know the Lord. And why did they not know the Lord, my friends? Because the previous generation had not taught them. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the power of those who plundered them. And yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods. If you're writing notes down, you can write a couple chapters and verses. I'm not going to have time to go to it. You can write down... Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14 through 17. 1 Kings 10, verse 26. And 11, verse 1 through 13. What am I skipping here? There are three things that the people are told when they get a king they are not to do. And all three of those things, King Solomon ends up breaking explicitly. God warned them, do not go back to Egypt to get your horses. Do not make yourselves rich upon this earth. And do not multiply for yourself wives. We are told in 1 Kings that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And that he returned to Egypt to get his horses. And why does the Lord not want them to return to Egypt? Because He does not want their heart to return there where they served Pharaoh instead of serving God. Solomon's son's name was, does anyone remember? Rehoboam. Rehoboam. And he had an enemy named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was cast out of the kingdom. And Jeroboam went off to Egypt to hide. And when he came back to the Holy Land, he brought with him and set up in the Holy Land a golden calf for the people also to worship. Their hearts were returning to Egypt where they would become slaves to the things of this earth rather than servants to the Almighty God. It is in this context that we first meet Jeremiah during the time of the kings. And I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah the priest, who were in Anathoth, Anothoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Okay, in order to contextualize Jeremiah's prophecy and ultimately his lamentations, we have to look at 2 Kings chapter 22. Take a look back at 2 Kings chapter 22 very quickly. Don't give up with me, guys. Flip there, please. Don't give up with me. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. My daughter is seven, got a big kick out of this. She says, I could be queen, Daddy. 
And look what happens. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, verse 2, and walked in the ways of David, his father. He tells his servants, go into the temple and clean out the temple. Clean it out. It's all messed up and things have been thrown there. The house of God is a mess. And look what happens in verse 5. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house. That is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons, as well as for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked for them for the money which is delivered into the hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave it to the, the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, uh, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king, and when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he rent his clothes. The law, which had been given for the life of the people, had been lost. In fact, the king, who was righteous, didn't even know that it had existed in the first place. Josiah went and began his reform. He lived from about 641 to 609, and it is in this context the Babylonian exile begins. The northern ten tribes in the year 722 had already been destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. And look back at Jeremiah now. Look back at Jeremiah with me to chapter 1, verse 14. Then the Lord said to me, Out of the north evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. For lo, I am calling all the tribes. Go ahead, Melanie. Kingdom of the north says the Lord, and they shall come and everyone shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls round about and against all the cities of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them for all their wickedness in forsaking me. They have burned incense to other gods and worshiped the works of their own hands. Okay, look at chapter 2, verse 11. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Okay. What is going on? Obviously, the people have turned their hearts away from the Lord. They have gone after false gods. And here, Jeremiah prophesies what is happening. A kingdom is going to come from the north. They are going to destroy and take away the people of God. And the Lord asks, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And what is the glory of the people of God? It is the revelation of God Himself in their midst. It is in this context in the prophecy of Ezekiel that the glory cloud of God which descended upon the temple is described as departing the temple out of the eastern gate and going up and resting upon the eastern mountain overlooking the city. Those that have been to Jerusalem with me, what mountain is that? The Mount of Olives. That the glory cloud of God went up the Mount of Olives and departed to the east. And Ezekiel sees the glory of God depart. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 34 will give us a little closer vision. Verse 1. The word which came, go ahead, Melanie. To Jeremiah from the Lord, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army, and all the kingdoms of the earth under his dominion, and all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and all of its cities. Thus says the Lord. Okay, stop. Imagine this. 
Babylon, the greatest empire in the world at the time. They had taken all nations into themselves. And the prophecy says that all of those nations had joined their forces and were now marching on Jerusalem. You can imagine the people stuck inside this very small city, looking out over the hills, covered, absolutely covered with soldiers coming over the hills to attack Jerusalem. Look at verse 6. Then Jeremiah, verse 6, Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah the king of Judah in Jerusalem and the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the cities of Judah that were left. Lachish and Azekah, for these were the only fortified cities of Judah that remained. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people to proclaim... So look at this. Stop for a second. Zedekiah looks out over the city he sees that there is absolutely no way he's going to be able to defend the city. At this critical moment, what would you expect the king to do? A couple things. Either run, run for his life, try to escape, okay? Or maybe rally his troops, increase the protection of the city. And what does he do? He makes a covenant with the people in Jerusalem to procl- a proclamation of liberty to them that everyone should set free his Hebrew slaves, male and female, that no one should enslave a Jew his brother. Does that seem a little strange to you guys? <laughs> We're about to be attacked. Release the slaves. Get rid of them. It's okay. Get rid of them. Why? Why? Because the law in Leviticus tells us, and I'm going to give you guys, and you can write it down. I'm just not going to be able to cover all the things that I would like to cover today. You can write down Leviticus chapter 25 and read it for yourself. The law in Leviticus 25 had told the people, number one, to keep the Sabbath day that they might come to know the Lord. For in serving and worshiping Him, they would come to know who He is. And when coming to know who He is, they would also come to know who they are, for we are made in the image and likeness of God. The people had ceased to serve the Lord, and therefore they had ceased to know Him. As we read in, the, in, in Judges, the next generation did not know the Lord or the great works He had done. They ceased to serve the Lord. It was on the Sabbath day that they were to serve the Lord. And they had ceased to honor the Sabbath day and to worship God there on the seventh day in His rest. Furthermore, in chapter 25 of the book of Leviticus, it tells us that the people of God were not only to keep the Sabbath every seven days, but every seven years they were to leave the fields fallow, unharvested, to give the land its own rest. But the Lord went further, that every seven times seven years, on the 50th year, the people of God were to celebrate a jubilee year. And during that jubilee year, they were to do one thing, release all those who had become servants to them, that those people may not serve their human masters, but might serve the Lord of all, that all the people of God might be in freedom to worship so that they might come to know Him and to know who they were as sons of God. In the midst of the greatest crisis that Zedekiah or any of the kings of Israel would ever face, 
Zedekiah realized exactly what was happening. That the people of God had broken the law. And they had kept their brothers in servitude like Pharaoh in Egypt. That they might not know the Lord. And when the people of God ceased to know the Lord, they ceased to become children of the Most High. And it is only for children to dwell in their father's home. Zedekiah flipped out. He says, get rid of the slaves. Get rid of the slaves as fast as you can because we might have a chance to be saved because we know if we're faithful to the Lord, he will be faithful to us. Verse 10, and they obeyed all the princes and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone should set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. They had ceased to be the people of God they had become the people of foreign gods, which are no gods at all. I'm skipping so many good things in my notes. <laughs> I prepared such nice notes for all you guys. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Okay, I just want to make sure. Hold on. Okay, let's look at Jeremiah. I'm sorry, no, look at Second Kings, and then we're going to look at Jeremiah, and then we're going to Lamentations for about 30 seconds. 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 1. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month of the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it, and they built siege works against it round about. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that they had no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city. Come down to verse 7. They slew the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and they put the eyes of Zedekiah out and bound him in fetters and took him to Babylon. The last thing the man saw was that his children would never reign upon the throne. In the fifth month of the seventh day of the month, which is the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every gate house he burned down and all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem and the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest, the slaves. The slaves who had not been set free were left in the land to, to do what? To be vine dressers and plowmen, to be gardeners, in the garden of the Lord. They were given their Sabbath rest. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 40. Jeremiah is arrested. And Jeremiah is taken off to Babylon by Nebuzaradan. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, the Lord, after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go in Ramah. When he took him bound in chains along with the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. So Jeremiah is arrested. He's taken in chains, and Nebuzaradan lets him go. 
He says, the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, the Lord your God pronounced this evil against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said, because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice. This thing has come upon you. Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think is good and right to go. Jeremiah leaves, and Jeremiah goes to Jerusalem. Turn to the book of Lamentations, which is right down the road. Jeremiah comes, I believe, over Mount Olives. If you look at where Ramah is, he would have come along a road which would have taken him right over the Mount of Olives, one of the most beautiful views of the old city. And there he came down, and he beheld the bride of God, Jerusalem, burning, with the dead still laying in the streets. Chapter 1, verse 1. How lonely sits the city, that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. Jeremiah is describing God has become dead to the people. How like a widow she has become. She that was great among the nations, she that was a princess, has become a vassal. This is the text, these first five verses that the choir is going to sing for us in just a moment. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see... With whom hast thou dealt thus? Should women eat their offspring, the children of their tender care? The people had become, were starving, and the women began to eat their babies. Chapter 3, verse 1. That heart, the heart of the lamentations. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into the darkness without any light. Surely against me he has turned his hand again and again the whole day long. Jeremiah is on the ground weeping over the city. Chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 1. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are reckoned as earthen pots the work of a potter's hand. Even the jackals give the breast and suckle their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursings cleave to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Chapter 5, verse 15 is the concluding text of Lamentations. The joy of our hearts has ceased our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. This is the turning point in many ways of lamentations. It is not merely a text of cleansing, of grief, but also it is a prayer for God's mercy, for his intervention. Look with me click quickly at chapter 2, verse 18. Cry aloud to the Lord, O daughter Sion. Let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Chapter 3, verse, 20, verse 21. But this I call to mind, 
and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Verse 28. Verse 28. Let him sit alone in silence when he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Let m- there may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Chapter 4, verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. Chapter 5, I would encourage you to read when you go home. I know I'm way over time, and so I'll just conclude with this thought. Lamentations and the situation that happened to the people of Israel is applicable to us today in this way. The church is the new Jerusalem, but we know from St. Paul that the church, the new Jerusalem, is made up of people, not stones. The Lord said, I will come to take your heart of stone out and put in you a heart of flesh that we might desire the Lord. I would ask you as we make our way through Advent not to be concerned about serving the things of this world, not to be so much concerned about what the gods of this world want us to do, but to ask ourselves, are we truly serving the Lord of all? For only when we truly serve Him, when we desire Him, when we love Him, will we come to know Him. And in coming to know Him, we will begin to understand who we are as sons of God. The Advent season is not for us, faithful followers of Christ, a time of feasting. It is a time of fasting. It is a time of increased prayer. It is a time for us to look at texts like Lamentations and ask ourselves where our heart's desire is and whether it has been about going after the things of this world, whether we have made the things of this world our gods and simply fulfilled our obligations regarding the church and the Lord. We have a few days left in our journey Make those days count. There's a great saying that I like to remind myself of. Where there is no investment, where there is no expectation, there will be no fulfillment. Over the next few days, read Lamentations as it's being written to you and to me to examine our hearts of where we have gone when we have walked away from the Lord and abandoned his holy city. Go to holy confession. And then, and only then, as Jeremiah tells us, when tears are coming down our cheeks and we have honest-to-God repentance in our heart, when our hearts are on the Lord, only then will God and his glory be manifest on this earth again. And the holy city of Jerusalem the church, be filled with His grace on Christmas morning. Make the few 
days we have left count. May God bless you. Thank you very much for your attention. So in the uh, context in which we were talking about, I don't believe we ever got the who Jeremiah was writing to, to. or writing this for. Very good. Very good. Turn with me to Second Kings. Turn with me to Second Kings. There is much debate on this point. I'm not saying that this is the exact answer, except I, this is at least my theory, and I think it's a good one. Jeremiah comes down, he sees the city burning, and he, and he laments, right? He just falls down weeping, right? But who does he see there? He sees, he sees the results of the devastation, right? But who's left? Yeah, look at verse, uh, chapter 25, verse 12. Chapter 25, verse 12. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And I believe that Jeremiah, in many ways, when he's writing his lamentations, especially when it's clear, it's almost like he's speaking to someone else, or he's speaking about the daughter of Sion repenting. The daughter of Sion, the daughter of Sion is this remnant. This remnant, it appears, when the city was sacked, went up to Mount Sion. If you've been there, Mount Sion is the highest point, even higher than the Temple Mount. And you had to go uphill to get there. And they took refuge there. And you hear the daughter of Sion, or daughter of Sion, mentioned in the church in relationship to the church, called daughter of Sion, or the remnant the remnant that was left in the land. And I believe it's that remnant. Who's lamenting? Is it the people heading off to Babylon? Well, certainly they, they lamented when they headed off. But who's lamenting there with Jeremiah? It's these people who are left there to be the vine dressers. Very beautifully, though, it does say, not here in 2 Kings, but I believe it's in, it's in Jeremiah where it says, and that year the land gave forth bountifully because the land lived out the Sabbath, the Jubilee year, and suddenly it became fruitful, just like when we enter into the worship of God and we honor that space for God in our life, then we become fruitful. So also the land became fruitful. So who is he speaking to? Or I'd say, who is he speaking with? And it's the daughter Sion. It's the remnant. And that remnant gives life and bursts forth and reestablishes Jerusalem when 70 years later all of the exiles come back. Now, what happens to that remnant? Some of them do remain there, but the vast majority of that remnant, and you can read about this text here in 2 Kings, but also in Jeremiah chapter 34 and following, or chapter 40 and following, that remnant actually ends up going into exile in Egypt a few really weeks or whatever, days, weeks later, because the, uh, the man who was set up to rule over them, the remnant that was left, Nebuchadnezzar sets up a guy to take care of them, and the guy is murdered. And so the people, the remnant, flip out, and they say, we got to get out of here. Nebuchadnezzar's going to kill us. And Jeremiah goes after them and says, don't do it. Don't leave. God will protect you. Trust in him. And they don't. And they take off and they go to Egypt. And there's a whole second aspect of Jeremiah's prophecy regarding that part of the story. And Jeremiah goes with them. And the fathers of the church tell us he went with them willingly so that he could go and, and minister to them in Egypt. Okay? 
All right. Other questions? Yes. In, in what you mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 40, mm -hmm. Nebuzaradan, Nebuzaradan, yeah. the captain, sorry, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard in chapter 40, how did he know so specifically about the prophecies against God? Well, there mm. are some righteous Gentiles, I guess, like in Judith chapter 5. How did he know about all this? What do you think? What do you think? He was an angel. Uh, no, I mean, the guy was like the head of Nebuchadnezzar. He burned Jerusalem and sacked it. Okay? So what happened? He goes out on the road. He takes Jeremiah captive. And a few miles from Jerusalem, they don't get, I mean, not even a day's journey. Ramah is not even a day's journey. It's the hill country of Judah. And what, all of a sudden, the guy turns to Jeremiah the prophet and says, yeah, you can go free because I know exactly what happened here. So what happened? Tell me, how did he, how did he know? How did he know? He turns to Jeremiah. The guy has a full-blown conversion on the road to Babylon, right? And he confesses the Lord, and he turns to the guy who he became friends with and says, I'm not taking you in chains because you have shown me a way that I did not previously know. Okay, now, do I know that for certain? No, but that's the, the text cer it certainly indicates that. It indicates that Jeremiah and Nebuchadnezzar became friends in some ways. He says, come with me. I'll take care of you, Jeremiah. You'll be not a servant or a slave. You'll be my friend in my house. I'll take care of you, but I won't force you. And notice, I will not make you serve. Okay, this, and this is the context of what's going on here of whether we are going to serve the things of this earth or we're going to serve the things of God. If our heart is going to be focused upon God to come to know Him and therefore come to know who we are in all of creation in relationship to Him, or whether we're going to be focused upon the things of this world and be in service to those things. Yes, uh, I uh, was wondering, you had mentioned earlier that this was going to be pertinent to an Advent season. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering if you could say some more words about how Lamentations of Jeremiah are um, related to Advent yeah. and why we're not, this isn't more of a Lenten subject to be covering yeah. rather than... The, 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 the singing you, would, you heard in the church, of course, is, is sung in the church on, uh, on Good Friday. And so normally we think of this text as a Lenten text. But also, Advent is a, is a Lent. It's a time of repentance and preparation. Why is Jeremiah proper also to the Advent season? Because it's during the Advent season that we're coming, we're looking towards the birth of the Savior. When the, when the exiles came back from Babylon, what did not come back with them? The Ark of the Covenant, which Jeremiah hid, you can get that in 2 Maccabees chapter 2, verse 1 through 8, that Jeremiah hid the Ark of the Covenant in the hills in Sinai. And remember, Ezekiel saw the glory cloud leave Jerusalem. The glory cloud was the, the, the revelation of the presence of God. And so when the remnant uh, was restored, when the people came back from exile and reestablished Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple... The glory of God never returned to the temple and the Ark of the Covenant was not there. The Jews, when, when the Romans conquered Jerusalem, when Alexander the Great conquered Jerusalem and he walked into the temple and he walked through the veil into the Holy of Holies, 
He saw nothing. It was a black, empty room. The glory of God had never returned. And so the people had been exiled. And when they returned to the land, they remained in exile because God had not returned to them. It was no longer for them the holy land in the place of the meeting of God. It was a place of exile, of torment, of tears. And they waited for that day and that moment when the Lord would return when the Messiah would come, when the glory of God would be found among the people again. And John tells us in the Gospel that Jesus is the glory of the Father. And He comes into Jerusalem, the glory of God now returning for the first time since the Babylonian exile. And the people of God are then reestablished around Him. No longer is God represented by a cloud and by uh, a wooden ark, by stone tablets. Ezekiel and Jeremiah says the same thing. I have taken out of you the heart of stone and I have put into you a heart of flesh that now my law may be in you. It may be in you. Why is it that Christians no longer worship on the Sabbath day? Why is it that we don't gather together to honor what was central. So central is this space for God called the Sabbath day. First of all, we do honor it in the ancient apostolic tradition to remember Saturday as a day of rest for the early Christians. They did. They did. But it is not for us as it was for the Jews because Jesus Christ is the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was the space where man and God would meet together and enter into a covenant with each other. Where God chose His people as His bride and the two would become one flesh. Jesus Christ is the revelation of that one flesh. God and man joined together in the eternal person of the Word, never more to be broken, so that those who are baptized into Jesus Christ live out the Sabbath rest in our life, not as one day a week. Remember, the Levitical law that was given was in response to the golden calf. God did not want His people to rest in Him one day a week. He wanted their entire life. We who are baptized into Jesus Christ are baptized into that union of God and man. Jesus is no longer God only. He is the God-man. We are not no longer humans only. We have been called up to divinization to become sons of God. We now live the rest of God for all eternity. And when God rests... The Bible tells us, Genesis tells us, He sanctifies His creation. When we rest in God, we are sanctified. We are made holy. We are made one with Him. Okay? Other questions? Yes, Bob. Uh, yeah, um, I, I saw a verse that confused me. Uh, that probably confused me too, but go ahead. Uh, uh, Lamentations uh, 115. Mm -hmm. Basically, it ends with, uh, basically, the Lord has trodden in a as in a wine press, the virgin daughter of Judah. So I guess, who's the virgin daughter of Judah? And the yeah, the, the virgin daughter is the people. As oftentimes, there's different images used. The virgin daughter, the virgin bride, okay, who is prepared to be adorned for her husband. You get a very similar text. It's not exactly the same thing. But all of these texts, the virgin daughter, the widow, the bride who has become a widow. Also, look at verse 8. 
Jerusalem has sinned grievously, therefore she's become filthy. All who honor her and despise her, honored her, despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. What did you see her nakedness is a, is, a, is a biblical phrase, which means to enter into a covenant relationship with her. And now she who she receives the life of the one whom she has yoked herself to. And when you put yourself into communion to things which are not God, ultimately you will find only death. And that's exactly what she has found. Okay? So all of these images of the bride. And don't forget, when you're reading this text, and I hope you will read it over the next uh, week, two weeks, this points to the church. And it points to each one of us. And it points to a, it's a, a great opportunity for an examination of conscience to read one or two or three of these lamentations in the church to prepare ourselves for holy confession. Where have we gone going after the things of this world? So my answer to you, maybe, can I come back to Jeff real quick about preparation for Advent? Twofold. Twofold. First of all, to look at in that historical aspect, we're looking towards Christ. But also, during the, this, for us today in 2013, it's very applicable. There you go. You want to know what was going on in the life of Jerusalem and the people of God? You go walk out into your shopping mall today. And you ask yourself what Christmas is about. You ask yourself what a relationship with God is about and about what the birth of Jesus Christ is about. It's right here. And you want to see burning Jerusalem? Look around us. This society is going to hell in a handbasket. And it's going to hell in a handbasket, and it reflects what's going on in Lamentations because we've become servants to the things of this world rather than servants of God. Okay? All right. It's late. I'll be around if you want to come up and talk to me. May God bless you, and I'll see you on Sunday. Thank you.
We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.